0: Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Cat, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Cat. In Nehemiah chapter 6, we're talking about spiritual warfare, and we talked this morning about distractions. I don't know if I would call a few lights being out a distraction, but it could be for some of us, but... Uh, Nonetheless, there are distractions that happen in our life and people who try to distract us from doing what God's called us to do. Tonight we pick up with a second point, and that is that you and I are to keep working in spite of defamation. In spite of defamation. In spite of someone uh, defaming, uh, running down, casting aspersions, criticizing uh, your life. And I want to begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 5. Now, remember, he has been uh, criticized. He's been asked to come for a meeting four times, and he said no. In verse 5, Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem, Geshemu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to these reports. In other words, You can just write by verse 6, the good old rumor mill was at work. The good old rumor mill was working hot and heavy. Verse 7, And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. (laughs) I love that little phrase, open letter. As a letter to the editor about the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, I wanted to make sure everybody knew what the rumors were, so everybody could be in the know and be informed. Have you ever met a believer who felt like it was their job to let you know everything that was going on even when you didn't want to know it? They just they, they wanted to know, and they had to know, so they wanted you to know. Well, that's what is doing. He, he's he got a rumor mill going, and, and he says, you know, Nehemiah, i just got to tell you, the rumor about you is you're an egomaniac, and, and you're trying to build a kingdom for yourself. In fact, you're, you, you've, you've just surrounded yourself with a bunch of yes men who are going to do exactly what you want them to do, and, and, and you're building this kingdom, and you're going to rebel against the king, and you're just going to take over. And the only reason you're building up Jerusalem is to get your own pockets padded. The rumor mill. The defamation of Nehemiah's motives. And the one thing you can never defend, folks, is your motive for doing anything. Only time is able to defend whether or not your motives were pure because you can't defend your motive because your motive comes from your heart. And Nehemiah's motive is being called into question. Now, let me give you a law of leadership here. We've got a lot of material to cover tonight, and we've got to do it before the sun goes down and the lights go out. All right, so let's, uh, let's listen carefully here, and let's just go to the law of leadership. Here's the law. Anyone who sets big goals is going to be criticized by those who have no goals. Anyone who sets big goals is going to be criticized by those who have no goals. Now, you're going to meet people in this life. They don't have any goals in life. They're just trying to live from day to day, and and they don't really have anything. You say, what do you want to do in your life? I don't know. Where do you want to be in 10 years? I don't know. What do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know you got a lot of I don't know's. People are just majoring in I don't know. And these, I told one of our deacons this morning as we were getting through with our prayer time that, that people who are failures hate people who are successful. They just do because it, it, it's an indictment on their desire to discipline themselves and to be what God saved them and called them to be. So, so this man, Sam Ballard has got this open letter and he's saying it's reported or it's rumored that you're doing all these kind of things, and they bring their concerns out into the open. They question his motives. They question his heart. They question his integrity. They attack his position. (laughs) I I love this story, and I don't know who started this story. I've had several people tell this story, but about the pastor who always got anonymous letters, and he was always getting these anonymous letters, and, and one Sunday he walked into the pulpit, and he said, you know, he said, I always get these anonymous letters. The way you know they're anonymous is they're not signed, so you don't really know who sent them. But I always get these unsigned letters, these anonymous letters, but this time I got a letter that was signed, but there was no letter. And he held it up It says, just says fool on it. He said, so whoever you are, thank you for identifying yourself. <laughs> Some of you catch that a little later. <laughs> Chuck Swindoll says, and you need to read through this quote with me, if you would, please. Part of the unwritten job, that should be job, not joy, that's my fault... Not the typist's fault, I put the wrong word in the notes. Part of the unwritten job requirements for every leader is the ability to handle criticism. That's part of the leadership package. If you never get criticized, chances are you aren't getting anything done. A wise leader will evaluate the opposition in light of the spirit and attitude in which the criticism is given. He will also consider the voice to which the opposition listens. If your critics listen to God's voice, you had better listen to them. But if they are marching to a different drumbeat, use the Nehemiah technique, look, they're not even in the same camp. Let's go right on. Next law of leadership. The truth doesn't need defending. If you'll notice, Nehemiah just kind of answers the criticism. He says, you know, that's not so. Look at verse 8. Then I sent a message to him, this man who's spreading all these reports, and said, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. Now, I think Living Bible says there, liar, liar, pants on fire. I don't know, but somebody told me it did. Uh, For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. I want you to notice what Nehemiah did. He just denied it and moved on. He says, you know what, that's not true. And then he started praying. You see, the truth doesn't need defending, folks. If you, you know, it's, uh, was it Shakespeare that said, Methinks you protest too much? You know, if you've got to always go out and defend yourself, it may be because you're trying to cover up something. And when you're standing on the truth, just let the truth stand for itself. Just stand on the truth, and ultimately, again, like we talked about this morning, time is on your side. Now... I want you to notice what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah doesn't say, I'm going to get into an argument. He says, I'm not going to get into this argument. I'm not going to get into discussion. I'm not going to get caught in this trap. I'm not going to give in to these efforts to undermine. I'm just going to keep moving on. By the way, if you read biographies, and you should because you need to find out the characteristics of great men, if you read secular or Christian biographies, you will find that the great leaders and the great men and women of history have been people who never tried to answer their critics. Winston Churchill said, I won't waste my time answering a critic. Abraham Lincoln is the most revered and criticized president that ever served this country. He never answered a critic. If you look at General Douglas MacArthur, he never answered a critic. If you read the lives of great men, you will find that those who get sucked down into their problems are those who are always trying to answer every critic. There's a critic on every corner, folks. And Henry Ward Beecher said, Life would be a virtual flea hunt if man was required to run down every innuendo and insinuation about him and the misrepresentations that are raised against him. I, I tell you, folks, I've been in ministry 25 years, and if I'd done half of what i have been accused of, I'd already been hung from the biggest tree in town. I, I, you know, I can't even make up the stuff that people make up sometimes. You can't either. Some of you have been accused of things, and you, just, you go home and you go, what? what was that all about? Spiritual warfare. Trying to undermine your life, trying to get you to quit. Because I'm going to tell you, the day you decide to get out of neutral and step over the line and say, I'm going to be what God wants me to be, and I don't care what anybody thinks about it, the enemy is going to do everything he can, including spreading lies and rumors and innuendos. He's going to do all he can to stop you from being what God wants you to be. Now, I want you to notice what Nehemiah did. He discerned, first of all, their motives. He discerned their motives. You're trying to frighten us. You're trying to frighten us. You're, you're trying to make us panic. Secondly, he denied their accusations, verse 8. And then he prayed for strength. He prayed for strength. Now, let, let me give you two characteristics of a rumor. Uh, is that in your notes? I think it is. Is it? Where are we here? Oh, there they are. Okay. Uh, two characteristics of a rumor. it's It's so nice not being on television, I can just kind of do what I want to do. <laughs> Wondering about who's watching behind that screen. Uh, two characteristics of a rumor. Number one, the source of the rumor is never revealed. There's a family that lives in this town that I can't find in the phone book. They. Mr. and Mrs. They. They said the source of the rumor can never be revealed. Well, I really can't tell you who said this. Then they didn't say it, and they don't exist. And if you think they exist, you are going to drive yourself crazy. Number two, the message is usually exaggerated and inaccurate. Now, let me tell you why rumors get going. Now, listen very carefully. Rumors get started because they appeal, they appeal to our flesh. We just want to get something on somebody so we feel better about ourselves by putting somebody else down. And they get started because they appeal to our old nature. Turn to the book of Proverbs, if you would, and I would just want to read some verses out of Proverbs 26. They're there in your notes, but uh, the reference is there. But I just want to read this. Uh, if you want some practical advice for a living, we've got one of the guys on the, the board for, for him is uh, Neil Kennedy. And Neil is uh, Neil's one of these guys. He, we call him the Proverbs man. Because every time he opens his mouth, he says, you know, Proverbs says, and, you know, sometimes Tim and I look at him and say, you know, Neil, do you know anything besides the book of Proverbs? You know, do, do you like know Ezra or something besides Proverbs? But, you know, he's always got these Proverbs, but he's wise. He said, you know, I read the Proverbs, and he said, I have for 15 years, I read one chapter in Proverbs every day. And so he's got almost the entire book of Proverbs memorized. Now, I want you to read these verses and see if they do not apply to the situation that Nehemiah's in. Proverbs 26, 17. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, Was I not joking? For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are burning lips in a wicked heart. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart." Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. Folks, let me tell you something. The only thing you've got is your character and your reputation. If somebody by rumor takes that away from you, in this world in which we live, where you are guilty before you're ever proven guilty or innocent, if you lose that, you lose everything. You see, it doesn't even have to be true. Somebody's just got to start it and then you spend your time trying to clean it up. So, how do you evaluate and how do you handle criticism? Number one, you evaluate the critic. Let me give you three questions to ask yourself in evaluating the critic. If, if you're being uh, criticized, if you're, somebody at your work or somebody in your family or somebody in your Sunday school class or wherever it might be is criticizing you, just ask yourself three questions. Number one, do I respect them? I didn't ask you if you loved them. You have to love them. I ask you, do I respect them? Do I hold their opinion in high esteem is what you're asking yourself. Do I respect this person's judgment and character and their life and their disciplines? Number two, ask yourself, are they constant critics? I mean, is this kind of the first time this has ever happened with this person or is this person just a constant critic? Everything they say out of their mouth is critical. Everything they say about everybody is critical. They're just constantly negative. And the third question is, and this is a big one, are they helping me? Are they helping me? Are they trying to help me? Are they serving and working? Are they interested in the welfare of what I'm involved in? Are they trying to hurt me? If you ask those questions, you've evaluated the critic to find out if it's somebody that's got a, a burr under their saddle or somebody that really might have something from God for you. The second thing after you evaluate the critic is you evaluate the criticism. You evaluate the criticism. You know, on the whole, the criticism might not be valid to you, but there may be a portion of it that God wants you to hear. So you need to evaluate the criticism, and you need to ask yourself, is this true? Is there a a portion of this? Is there anything I can learn from this? Is there something positive in this that can make me more into the image of Christ? Is God just using this in my life to kind of shave some rough edges off of me? Uh, When you're evaluating the criticism, you've got to remember it goes with the territory. If you're going to be a leader, you've got to remember that criticism goes with the territory. Just being out there in front is going to get you criticized. Just, just speaking, living, driving, eating, going wherever you do, you're, you're going to be criticized. Okay? It just goes with life. All right. Now, here's what you've got to do in evaluating the criticism. And this is real key, and this is where our staff helps me a great deal. You've got to find people who you love and trust explicitly and ask them to tell you the truth. You've got to find people that you love and you trust and you ask them to tell you the truth. You've got to ask them, is this criticism valid of me? Don't ask the person that's trying to undermine you. Ask somebody that's trying to help you. You know, is this a valid criticism of my life? Is this a valid point that I need to listen to and I need to hear and I need to come to some agreement on? I, I tell you, I, I've got men in this church, laymen and staff, that I go to and sometimes I go, yeah, you yeah, You just probably ought not to do that anymore. Okay, you know. And sometimes they have to come back and say, I told you one time you don't need to do that. Okay, you know, sooner or later I'll get it. Don't laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Evaluate the critic. Evaluate the criticism. By the way, nobody's right all the time. So anybody that thinks they're above criticism has not done an honest evaluation of their life. There may be something God's trying to teach you. So you evaluate the critic, you evaluate the criticism, and number three, you expect it. We talked about that this morning. It goes with the territory. Just the nature of ministry and the nature of leadership and the nature of having responsibility means that somebody's going to criticize you. It doesn't matter whether you're a teacher or a student or or whoever you might be, somebody's going to criticize you for what you do. So just learn to live with it because it's going to be a part of life. The only way you can not be criticized is become invisible. And then they'll gripe at you because you're not there. But uh, let's go to a law of leadership. Anyone who wants to make a difference with their life must be prepared to pay the dues. If you want to make a difference with your life, there's a cost attached to that. And it means that you must be willing to take criticism and learn from it and live with it. Now, I, I just kind of went through these first two points in the life of Christ. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, and Satan said, "Why, why don't you come with me and and why don't you do this Messiah thing my way?" I mean, you've already gone through the virgin birth. You've already lived 30 years of your life sinless. Now that you're on the platform of beginning a ministry, why don't you come over here to the side and and let's do this Messiah thing with my plan and my design. And Jesus said quoting the word, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus always went back to the scripture and he defeated the enemy. Remember, the way the devil dealt, uh, the, Jesus dealt with the devil is he always quoted the word of God. You know why he did that? Because Jesus didn't want you saying one day when you're faced with a problem, well, Jesus had something I didn't have. He just used the very resource he's given you, the word of God. And the way you deal with criticism is the same way Jesus dealt with it. You use Scripture. You use the Word of God. You don't let somebody misquote it to you. You don't let somebody misrepresent it. And in the wilderness he said that. Remember the disciples? Let's go around Samaria. We don't like Samaritans. You know, those, those people are different. We, we don't like them. And Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. And then they said, well, let's go to Jerusalem. Everything's great. He said, it's not my time to go to Jerusalem. Then Jesus one day said, let's go to Jerusalem. And the guy said, they're going to kill you if you go to Jerusalem. There was always somebody in Jesus' life, even among his friends, who tried to get him to do it another way than the way God wanted him to do it. When you look at his ministry, they accused him of uh, being a wine-bibber, of being a friend of sinners. That's a great accusation. I'd like somebody to accuse us of that. Sherwood Baptist Church, a friend of sinners. The problem is we got too many churches that are friends of snobs That's why the lost world is lost. We ought to be friends of sinners, right? I mean, I'd like for the world to accuse us of being a friend of sinners. That's kind of like Jesus. That'd be all right. They question his motives. They spread rumors about him. They attacked him for healing on the Sabbath. They attacked his disciples for what they did on the Sabbath. All the things that began to happen in his ministry, they kept coming at him, trying to falsely accuse him and to get him off his focus, but he stayed focused on what God called him to do, what he had come to do. At his trial, he had opportunities to defend himself. Herod accused him. Pilate questioned him. He stood before the Roman guards. Jesus had an opportunity to respond to the critics. He could have said, you know what? I've had about all of this I'm going to take. I've I've listened to as much as I'm going to listen to. I've put up with this long enough. I'm going to kill every one of you, and I'm going to start over. And he would have had every right to do so. But he didn't do it. When he was on the cross with his arms stretched out and his feet nailed to that cross and he was beaten and bleeding and dying and suffering physically and spiritually, they stood at the cross before the naked body of our Lord and said, He can save everybody else, but he can't save himself. I'm going to tell you, he had the power to take his hand off that nail and said, I'll tell you what I'll do, pal. But you know what he did? He stayed there, and maybe he remembered the words of Nehemiah, and he stayed with his hands on the cross and said, I cannot come down. I'm doing too great a work. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't spend his time going to the cross answering his critics? And I'm going to tell you something, folks. Sometimes you are most like Jesus when you could do something and you don't do it. You don't have to prove your point all the time. You don't have to be right all the time. I can remember a situation that I was going into about fifteen years ago, and I just, you know, I, I was ready to prove that I was right because I was out trying to save my job. And I, man, I was—I I, put—I had the file, I had the facts, I put them in the car, and I started driving to the church to the meeting. I was ready to go, and I was going to put my story down on the table because I was ready to tell my story. And I can still take you in my mind, and I can take you to the spot where the Lord got in the car with me. I left the house without him. But I can take you to the spot where he got in the car with me and said, take your foot off the accelerator. I need to talk to you. And so I slowed down. And I'm going to tell you as clear as anybody in this room speaking to me, God spoke to my heart and said, you leave that file in this car. I'll take care of your ministry. I said, but Lord, you, you just, you don't know. He said, oh, I know. Lord, you don't, oh, I understand Lord, you got it. And he said, Look, I'm telling you, leave the file in the card and I'll take care of you. And you know what? He did. He did. And I knew enough to change the outcome of that meeting. And it didn't seem right and it didn't seem fair. But God said, You let me handle that. I learned something about the nature of Christ that day and what he wants to do in the life of a believer that I've never forgotten. I mentioned it this morning. God is my defense attorney. I don't have to defend myself if I let God do the defending. Now, if I get out there without him, I'm on my own. <laughs> I've gone before the court without a lawyer and said I'm going to defend myself and the court says, "Son, do you know what you're doing? You can't defend yourself." Right. So don't try. When you're trying to handle criticism, you need to understand that Jesus was able to go to the cross and say, it is finished because he had done it God's way. He had pleased the Father. Now you look at the church in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, the church was opposed from the outside. In Acts chapter 5, there was internal friction. In Acts chapter 6, there was murmuring in the membership. In Acts 7, there was opposition and persecution. And in Acts 8, the church was scattered. But you know... We don't talk about that when we talk about the New Testament church in Acts. We don't talk about those problems in Acts 4 through 8. You know what we talk about? Power. We talk about people being saved. We talk about thousands of people coming to Christ. We talk about lives being changed. We talk about Paul on the road to Damascus. We talk about the great moments in the book of Acts. Why? Because when God's in control, the problems don't rise to the surface. God's power rises to the surface. And the problems are secondary. And all they did in the problems in the book of Acts, have you read it lately? When they were in trouble in Acts, they went to God and prayed and said, God, we're thankful that we're worthy enough to suffer for your name. We're thankful that you can trust us with these problems and that you allow these things to come our way. And Lord, we just ask for more of them so we can be bolder. (laughs) We want more boldness in facing life. Remember what Nehemiah said, and just turn back to chapter 2. I want to look at this real quick. We're closer to being through than you think, but not that close. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 20. This is what Nehemiah said to his critics in the very beginning. So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success, therefore we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Let me tell you three things about critics from that verse. Number one, critics have no share in God's plan. They have no share in God's plan. Listen, folks, whatever God does, He does without them. They're just not a part of God's plan. Number two, critics have no claim in God's plan. Now, Notice what Nehemiah says. He says, God will give us a, a success, and you have no portion, no right, or memorial in Jerusalem critics have no claim in God's plan here's what that means choir it, it means um, you know what a memorial is it's something that you put up in a certain place and people come back and remember what God did there it's the memorial stones in Joshua chapter 3 what Nehemiah is saying when, when our ancestors when those that come after us come back and look at this place their names won't be in the program that's what he said He said, those who had a part, those who made a way, those who built the wall, their names will be etched in the memorial. But those who didn't want God to do anything, they don't have a part in God's plan. Nobody remembers. Here's what Nehemiah says. Nobody remembers and honors critics. People remember builders. Anybody can be a critic. It doesn't cost you anything. But God remembers and builds memorials to people who build for him. And I'm not talking about buildings there. I'm talking about investing in people's lives. Number three, critics have no right influencing God's plan. Now, Nehemiah was the official governor of the region. He was appointed by the king. He was the one that God had given the authority in this situation. And notice what he says. The God of heaven will give us success. Here's what Nehemiah did. When Nehemiah said the God of heaven will give us success, he took the responsibility out of his hands and made it all God's. He said, look, I'm just a servant. It's not my responsibility to make this thing succeed. It's God's responsibility. And, folks, I'm going to tell you something. If Sherwood Baptist Church is dependent on Michael Catt or the staff to succeed, you're already in trouble. The God of heaven is the one that gives us success. He could take everybody in this room out tonight, start over tomorrow, and his church would still be successful if he wants it to be. He doesn't need us. He just chooses to use us. And as long as we're usable and available, he'll use us. But the day we decide that we're the key to the success, he'll take his hand off of us. Leads us to the third thing. Keep working in spite of distractions. Keep working in spite of defamation. And keep working in spite of danger. Now, in verse 10, Shemaiah comes to Nehemiah with a plan. He was a, a prophet. In verse 11, we pick up, and I said, Should a man like me flee? He had said, will not you go to the temple and shut the doors and hide there because people are going to try to kill you. Should a man like me flee and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived, there's discernment again, then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Now, he didn't see the canceled check. God just said, you know what? That guy's been bought off. That's a bought-off preacher. And he's lying to you because he's been bought to lie to you, paid off to lie to you. Now, notice, he hired him for this reason, that I might become frightened. Have you noticed how many times Nehemiah says that what the enemy tries to do is build fear in your life? He always works on fear, which is the opposite of faith, so that I might be frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Samballot, according to these words of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. The law of leadership, leadership is something you are and something you do. Now here's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Shemaiah is, is a man who professes to be a prophet, and, and, but, but in verse 10 it says he was a paid setup man. He was a secret Informer, He says to Nehemiah, you know, there there's some people out to get you, Nehemiah, and I think what you need to do is, is you need to go hide in the temple until we can find out who those paid assassins are and we can take care of them and, and get rid of them so then it'll be safe for you to come out. Now, let me tell you, if somebody's after your hide, that sounds like good advice. Only one problem. If Nehemiah had gone into the temple and shut the door, he would have violated Numbers 18.7 which says if you do that, it's the death penalty. So you see, if they couldn't kill Nehemiah, they'd just get him in the temple breaking the law of God, and then they'd have to kill him. His supporters would have to kill him because it brought the death penalty to go in and break the law of God, and he would have violated a very clear teaching of the Word of God in Numbers 18. That's why to have discernment, you've got to be in the Word of God. You've got to know what God says in his word. You can't go by the opinions and suggestions of men. And here's a man who comes to him and he says, you know, God's told me and I'm trying to tell you. I, I, I came up with a great answer. It's, I'm, this is not original with me, but I came up with a great answer to these, God told me to tell you. You ever meet any of those people? God told me to tell you. God, God told me to tell you. Here's my answer. You know... I was talking to God this morning, and he didn't mention your name. (laughs) Folks, let me tell you something. When Jesus died, and when he rose from the dead, and when the Holy Spirit came, it tells us in the Word of God that we are now in a priesthood of believers. That means that God doesn't have to speak to me through somebody else. God speaks to me directly through his Word and through his Spirit. And I don't need somebody to tell me what God says. I just need to go to the Word and see what God says. Because he's never going to contradict his word. And so this man came and he tried to seduce Nehemiah into sinning. And so there's a law of leadership. And boy, this is a big one. Don't take everyone's advice just because they are friendly to you. Don't take everyone's advice just because they are friendly to you. You see, nothing substitutes for this assurance and the knowledge of the word of God. Now, how do you keep working if you want to stand in victory? What do you have to do? Verse 15, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month, Elu, in 52 days. Four characteristics of those who walk in victory. Number one, they have a compelling purpose. They have a compelling purpose. There's a cause, there's a vision, there's a passion, there's a goal, there's an objective that they've got that that has their heart. Now, listen. For the believer, that means it doesn't drive them. The lost world is driven. It means it draws them. That purpose, that goal, that passion draws them into a deeper purpose, draws them into a compelling purpose, and they are committed to it because they're drawn to it, not driven by it to perform, but drawn to it to be what God wants them to be. Verse 3, I am carrying on a great project. I want to ask you, what is your great project? What's your great purpose? What motivates you to get up in the morning? What is it that sustains you, that compels you, that's a a driving force in your life, that keeps you from playing trivial pursuit with your life? You see, whatever you're giving your time to, that's your compelling purpose. Because, you see, your time is your life. And if you're giving your time to things that don't matter, then you're giving your life to things that don't matter. If you're spending your time spinning your wheels and going nowhere, your life is going nowhere. Do you have a compelling purpose? Is there something that burns deep down within you that makes you say, God, I want to live to see something through? This drives me. This motivates me. This draws me. This burdens me. I weep over this. I pray over this. I strive for this. I long for this. I ask God to do this in my life. Is there a compelling purpose in your life? If there's not, somehow, some way, Satan will get you in the 90% rule and you'll stop before you're finished. Number two, people who walk in victory and stand in victory have a clear perspective a clear perspective that goes back to discernment you see fear clouds your perspective now i want you to write down an acrostic for fear just just go down the page left hand side of the page somewhere and put f e a r and let me give you an acrostic for fear fear is false evidence appearing real false evidence appearing real That's what fear is. Fear is something that's not real, but it appears to be real. It's not true, but it looks like it's true. It's false evidence appearing real. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, I urge pastors, this was in a pastor's school that he was doing, I urge pastors to have a blind eye and deaf ear when it comes to gossip and criticism. You cannot stop people's tongues, and therefore the best thing to do is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. Judge it to be a small matter what men think or say of you and care only for their treatment of your Lord. You see, folks, what matters is not how people treat you. What matters is what they do to the kingdom. And part of our problem is as leaders, part of our problems is as as dads sometimes, as husbands, as Sunday school teachers, as deacons, as staff, as, as Christian businessmen, part of our problem is we take ourselves way too seriously. I mean, we're just, we're just real serious about ourselves. Don't take yourself so seriously. Take God very seriously. You're not nearly as important as you think you are, and you're not nearly as necessary as you've convinced yourself to believe you are. You know, I, I just I realized one day when I was young, young, young in the ministry, I, started, I just sat down and made a list. Let's see now. In the last 2,000 years, Simon Peter's dead... James, the brother of our Lord, is dead. John, the apostle of love, is dead. Paul is dead. Martin Luther's dead. John Wesley's dead. Spurgeon's dead. D.O. Moody's dead. And life goes on. And the cause of Christ moves forward. And in that moment, I realized, you know, Michael, it's never about you. It's only about him. Because, folks, you can live all your life Trying to impress people with who you are. The truth of the matter is, five years after you're dead, nobody's going to know you ever lived anyway except your family. So why don't you just try to impress people with how serious God is? And quit trying to impress people with how great you are. Because the truth is, we're just dust. And we go back to dust. And when we get to heaven, we're not going to strut. And we're not going to wear our crowns. We're going to lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Whatever rewards are ours are never really ours. We may get to touch them just long enough to say, Lord, they're yours anyway. That's all we get. Number three, they are continually in prayer. They are continually in prayer. If you just read the book of Nehemiah sometimes and you'll find how many times he mentions prayer, he says in verse 9, but I prayed. Now, let me just say this and we'll move to the last point. You are either praying or you are panicking. But you don't panic when you pray. You are either praying or you're panicking. Oh, you just can't, you can't believe what's happening to me. Yeah, I can You're not praying. Because you see, if you're praying, you're not panicked. Why did Nehemiah pray? Because it gives us the perspective from eternity. We don't get caught in the moment and lost in the event. We get the perspective that this is a part of what God's allowing and what God's doing in our lives, and we get His point of view. And I prayed to God, God, strengthen my hands. In prayer, you find the strength to do what God's called you to do. Lord, you're going to have to strengthen my hands. I can't figure this one out. I can't handle this one. I can't overcome this. Lord, strengthen my hands. Number four, they're continually in prayer. Number four, they have a courageous persistence. They have a courageous persistence. Nehemiah verse 11, chapter 6 and verse 11. Should a man like me flee, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Well, all they had to do was hang the doors, and they were going to celebrate. The wall was finished. Everything was complete. Now, failure is always the path of least resistance. If you want to fail, always choose the path of least resistance. Courage is not the absence of fear or the absence of problems. Courage is moving ahead in spite of your fear. A courageous persistence. You see, when fear dominates us, we want to run. When faith dominates us, we'll stand and see the victory. Here's the law of leadership. It's never God's will to run in a difficult situation. It is never God's will to run in a difficult situation. I have watched more people in the faith who have run in difficult situations, and God just had to follow them. He had to get there, and He had to surround them. He had to take them all through it again. I'm going to tell you, there are people that live all their lives, they'll live 50, 60, 70, 80 years all their lives repeating the same problems, going through the same issues, dealing with the same stuff, never learning, because God keeps trying to teach them, and they panic and they run. They just take off. I can't handle this. i got to run. i I, I got to move. i got to leave. i got to change jobs. i gotta, I, I just got to run. I'm going to tell you, it's never God's will to run in a difficult situation. Get on the other side of it and then pray about it. And the thing that you're going to have to do if you're going to be victorious is you have to have courageous persistence, which means simply this. If you're going to be a leader, you got to stick your neck out and when you stick your neck out, somebody's going to try to cut it off. And when they do, you're just going to have to keep ducking. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catch. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.